Hey everybody, uh, welcome to Topco Business Unusual podcast. Today I'm here with a legend, a survivor, author, Brett Archibald, the legend. How are you? Ralph, I'm fantastic. I, I, I won't, uh, I won't uh, concede to your status of legend, <laughs> much as I'd like to. I, <laughs> Depends I who you talk to. Incredibly, incredibly lucky, lucky human being and blessed. That makes you a legend. You were in Plet hunting waves, and now you're in Cape Town. I was. I was very fortunate that they allowed us that six-day window to to get back to if you were stuck somewhere in South Africa. I think it was provincially based. You could, uh, within a six-day period, you could go home. So from hunting waves and seeing some of the best waves I've ever seen in that whole region, J-Bay, Plet, St. Francis, Vic Bay, and we weren't allowed to surf. It was not worth staying on. I had to come home. Yeah, that is criminal, for sure. So I finally got round to reading your book last night. I finished it just before 12 well o'clock. Done. Sure. I, I couldn't sleep, though. It's a, it, you know, Ralph, it's an incredible story. I, I actually, it was just before you and I got on this call, I was on a call with, one of my clients said I did a talk for their UN function two years ago, and, and she was mentioning how she'd just read my post on Facebook talking about seven years. And I, I myself can't believe it was seven years ago. And, you know, it's just one of those things. Some days it feels like it never happened. Other days I reflect and it feels like it was yesterday. It's just a crazy, crazy story that I, I'm just so fortunate that I get to tell it. So I'm so excited to be able to share with you. So, I mean, for those people who are listening who maybe haven't read the book, the book's called Alone. And, and Britt, it, it sort of tells your story. It tells the story of the crew that you're with. And it tells the story of how your wife and your family and then lastly, it sort of tells a story of the, the Aussie boat that rescued you. And also the, the, then the story of the captain yeah. who was captaining the Aussie boat. So it's sort of five different stories all happening at the same time yeah. in real time through this endeavor. But, but essentially, the story is about how you passed out, yeah. vomited, passed out. And woke up in the ocean and see your 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 friends in the boat disappear into the darkness. I, think, I mean, I think that moment will stay with me forever. I, I, you know, we'd we'd um, travelled an incredibly long way. For those people who've been to that part of the world, it's a long haul. I'd gone a very weird way, different to everybody else. Most guys went through Dubai, and I'd flown via Singapore because I had some work to do in Singapore on my way back. And it literally, I traveled for 56 hours coming off the back of a horrible part of my life. My business was in trouble. I wasn't going to go on this trip. And this story for me is so unique in so many, unique for me because I'm, I'm the, the, one of the main role players in it. But more than that, it, so many incredible things happened. And I'll give you a small example. Right in the beginning, before I even flew, I, I was fly, fly, flying on a Sunday. On the Friday evening, I was at my 
wife's youngest cousin's wedding. And she was marrying a young Australian guy. It was a small wedding out in Stellenbosch, and we were having a fantastic time. And at the end of the evening, I was now flying. We'd gone out and spent the weekend there. I was flying on the Sunday morning, and I had to get up at 5 a.m. The wedding was Saturday, and we only wrapped up at about 2 o'clock, so I wasn't going to get much sleep, but I was quite comfortable because I was going to sleep on the plane. And just as we're all packing up and helping tidy up the venue, this youngster walks up to me and he says, oh, mate, I believe you're going to the Mentawis. I said, I am. I'm leaving. In fact, I'm on a plane in six hours' time. And he said, well, that's amazing. My dad's also going to the Mentawis. And his dad was one of the blokes on the boat that rescued me. No. No, we Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't in the story? No. We only found that out way afterwards. Way, way afterwards, after the book was, you know, the book was actually read, was written and ready to go in December. 20, so I fell over in, in April 2013. In December 2014, that book was done, completed, ready for publishing. And I could not read it. I could not read it. For a year, it sat in my drawer next to my bed and I pulled it out. And I tried to read it as a whole book. And every time I got to the certain parts and I just could not, could not, I just had to put it down. And I could not sit and read it from start to finish for almost a year. And it was only at the end of that final year. And I, I really believe everything in life happens for a reason. During that year, I'd been down the road of trying to find someone to publish it. Um, I'd, I'd had a, a ghostwriter write write for me and we'd worked together for over a year on that on the whole story amazing amazing lady who just got how I wanted the story told and we'd been to see so many publishers and I tell you what I, I was so disappointed in that in that industry and the way people handled it and it was just unique Ralph I, I didn't want to I hadn't found anybody who'd rung the button and said this is the right a path to follow and at the end of that 2014 I did a talk in Johannesburg and there was this woman in the crowd and I just got she, she was crying and sobbing and she was so emotionally involved in my story that at the end I, I went up to her and I said are you okay I, I just noticed you were really emotionally um engaged in this whole story and she said this is she said i'm going through a tough time in my life and this has been the most radical story i've ever heard because i can identify to so much of it and you just helped me see things in a different way she said you have to publish a book and i said funny you say that i have got a book and i just can't find the right publisher and she said to me my brother-in-law is a publisher i'm phoning him right now and she phoned her brother-in-law, there and then, put me on the phone with him, and we started chatting. And I said, I really got on well with this guy. And, and I said, well, I'd love to chat to you. He said, well, I've got a couple of hours tomorrow. I was flying back. I said, I'm on an 8 o'clock flight. I land at 10. Why don't I meet you? And we met at a little coffee shop on the way back from the airport um, in Rondebosch. And... He said, look, I'm sorry, but I've only got 20 minutes. Well, long story short, two hours later, <laughs> we were still together. And he said, I have to publish your book. And that's when we struck up a chord. We worked together and the book was published. And 
launched in three months from that moment. I've actually um, got the book in front of me and I've, I think it's page 166. It's halfway through. You're 14 hours into 28 yeah. hours. Your friends have just gone past oh. you. And I, and I cried reading it last night. Yeah, I tears came out of my eyes. <laughs> and it wasn't the only yeah, time. I, I must I, tell you. I tell you, I make a point of reading that, that book once a year. And I, I still cry many times in it. But I have to say, I when I came around after falling overboard, I mean, I didn't realize at the time I was unconscious. I was tumbling. I was in this this dream of being in a washing machine. And I was tumbling around. I was a kid again. And I remember thinking, oh, this is such a cool game. I mean, they figured out afterwards I'd fallen six meters, hit the water, didn't, didn't feel it or anything. I got dragged under the boat and I was tumbling in this white water. I went through two propellers, one on each side of me. How, How on earth? I wasn't chopped up and spat out there and then, we have no idea. My head popped out the water and at that moment, I just felt all this water on my face. And I remember my dream morphed into, I thought my friends were flicking water on my face saying, wake up, Brett, wake up, we're at the surf spot. And I opened my eyes and there ahead of me was my boat, brightly lit. Earlier on, I'd helped the skipper pull the, our tender, tin tender boat in onto, it was on a 50 meter rope. We pulled it in onto a 20 meter rope because he was scared it might drag, drag under the water and pull the back transom off the boat. And I'd help them do that. And suddenly this tin boat went past. I mean, how the tin boat didn't hit me on the head is a miracle itself. And I remember seeing that little tin boat going past and thinking, I have to catch that. And I just put my head down and swam. I don't know how many strokes it was, maybe 10. And then I lifted my head and just watched the tin boat, my boat okay. disappear. And I thought that was the worst moment. 12 hours later, to the hour, my boat comes along again. And the seas calm down a little bit. There's still choppy, choppy water, but the waves aren't as intense. And for a long, long time, I saw them. I saw them approach, approach, come closer, closer. They were battling. I mean, it was a, not a big boat, and it was battling in the storm. We, I didn't know, and the guys on board didn't know at the time, but half, half the boat underneath the, the bottom deck was submerged in water because our, not all our bilge pumps were working. So the boat was very sluggish and wallowing in the water. And I even think, thought, wow, this is not looking good in the water. And then they stopped. And they were, I don't think, <laughs> more, more than 50 meters away. And I'm going, yay, they've seen me. And I'm literally high-fiving myself. I knew they would come back. I was convinced that my mates would come back. Now they've, everything's happened, as I predicted. They're, my mates are back. I'm going to be rescued. I, at this stage, was at the bow of the boat, and the current was really strong. And suddenly, I, and I saw two of my friends on the, on the top deck. I saw the rest of the guys at the, at the back of the boat milling around, and I thought, hey, what a, I even remember thinking, what a clever skipper. He's not going to try and bring this 60-foot boat up to me. He's going to launch the tender boat, come and pick me up. And I'm saying to myself, you know, I've got a really um, macabre sense of humor. I'm like, how far are we going to be drinking beer tonight, talking about this for the rest of our lives? And I still see this activity, and I'm waving, and I'm screaming, and I'm, guys are looking at me, but they're not cheering or anything. And I'm going, there's something wrong with this picture. And suddenly I'm in the middle of the boat, and there's still all this activity, but no one's looking at me. 
and I'm screaming, and I'm putting my head down, and I'm swimming at this boat, and I cannot get there. Suddenly, I'm right at the back of the boat, and I realize they haven't seen me, and they're looking, on the, they're looking to the, the port side and said, I'm on the starboard side. They're all looking the wrong way. And I'm, guys, and I'm screaming. I thought my lungs were going to come out of my, my throat. And then I realized I, they, they have not seen me. I have to get to that boat. And I put my head down, and I swam with everything I had. And I, I lifted my head, and I was maybe two meters closer. And this current was just dragging me further and further away from them. And then I started trying to raise and wave my arms. And at that moment, I just saw these two puffs of black smoke come out the exhaust on the top of the boat as the engine restarted. And they sailed away again. And let me tell you, but I, I thought I'd had a meltdown when I saw them sail away the first time. That, that was me. I just, I gave up. I just wanted to die. I just wanted to sink to the bottom because for me at that moment, you know, I, I, I knew it's a passage of water where there are only uh, surf charter boats and supply boats. Supply boats weren't going to be going out in that storm, nor, nor were any surf charter boats. It's not a shipping channel. That was it. If my boat didn't find me, that was me. I didn't realize there were any other boats looking. And I watched them sail away. Hey, but how did you? We know they were coming back. I mean, I, I think that there's there's this un sort of known bond or of trust almost because they also felt the same way. They were like, "We're coming back for you." And and I think what's weird is that I I, I told you this before, but when this happened, it was on the radio, and so I was driving to work, and I was actually just going past them, Dudno, looking at the surf, and it came on that there's a surfer. And then when we looked, I don't. I think I told you this as well. But we were on that same boat with Yantu and Boy one year before. No, you never. So the year before this happened, we were on exactly the same boat. So I was thinking, oh my goodness, this is crazy. They're looking for him. So for for me, it was touching me because I was feeling like that could have been me, and they better save you <laughs> because that could have been any one of our friends. And I think that's sort of why Doris probably came as well, because he realized it could have been him. Yeah. But I mean, that, that trust that you had in them, do you think that's what got you through to that point? At well, least? Without a doubt to that point, you know, I, 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 and it's quite it's quite insane. Our group of friends and, and to just take a step back, I mean, for me, an, another uncanny um um, link to this whole story. I mean, we were nine South Africans. We should have been 10. One of our friends was diagnosed with stage four melanoma cancer in his back, and he had to be operated on immediately. So he was hauled off the trip. The guys, the Australian boat with Doris, they were nine friends celebrating a 50th. The two guys whose 50th it was, was on the same day, which was the day that I was rescued. They were both, and I remember talking to my mate, Who's fiftieth? It was and saying, "Buddy, I'm going to swim for you with everything I've got because I cannot ruin your fiftieth birthday." Imagine waking up on your fiftieth birthday to find out your mate's dead. He's died. He's died on a surf trip that you're all on. I mean, I don't think there could be anything worse. Another thing is we, you know, it's, it's weird. We'd all all started school together. We most of us had known each other since grade one. Some of them, some of us had only known each other for high school, but we'd all known each other for a long, long period of time since we were kids. We'd all done military service together in different ways, or but at the same time, 
But what is so interesting, I, I, you, without a shadow of doubt, when I, when I calmed myself down after realizing where I was in, in the ocean, I just knew that my mates would come back for me. And I had to survive until that. And I did. I, 12 hours to the hour. It was in the ship's log when they stopped 2.30 p.m. that afternoon. I'd fallen over 2.30 a.m. or round about there. I just, I'd, at 2.25, I'd walked out onto the deck, and within the next five to ten minutes, I was gone. The 12 hours, I, I, I kept fighting knowing that I had some hope. When they sailed away, oh, buddy, I, I tell you, I still, to this day, I think back on that because I just gave up. I gave up completely at that moment. I, my body cramped. I went into this complete, just, I had to, and that's when I saw this, I mean, I saw the Virgin Mary in this cloud. And I remember, I mean, it was so surreal, but real. And I remember saying to God, like, what is that? And I, I mean, that, I knew it wasn't real, but it was so real for me. And then it disappeared. And I was like, what was that all about? And then I saw this boy. The boy was far away, but I knew I could get there, you know, and I started swimming to this thing, and I'd forgotten all about my near miss with my friends. I'd forgotten. I was realigning, recalibrating my brain. There's a boy. My boat's gone. Stop worrying about them. They're gone. They're going to sail all the way back to Padang, refuel. By that time, you're going to be dead, so you have to make another plan, and then I saw this boy. And it was so interesting working with Tim Noakes afterwards, Professor Noakes, and he, and he said, by this stage, I'd swallowed so much water. I, I was dehydrating. I had so much salt in my body. I was starting to hallucinate. And it did. I mean, it was all these funny little hallucinations that in a weird and wonderful way were the things that um, ended up saving me. And, and the jellyfish realigning you, waking yeah. up. I mean, when we spoke as well, I, I felt that looking at what happened with you, I, I, and, I, and I think I said it to you earlier, this couldn't be a better time to tell this story because it almost feels there's so many parallels to what happened to you in those 28 hours in many ways to the beginning of what's happening to the world with COVID. And I think that, number one, there's business people, there's families, who are going through some challenges. I, I know in the surf community, there's many fathers in the last couple of years in their 50s who've, who've taken their lives because they felt they can't yeah. cope. And then I look at sort of what you went through and the challenges that you went through. And, and I just think there's so many parallels to, to how we can cope as a country, as families, as organizations through this moment, because you didn't know how long you're going to be out there. And so I, I sort of, how, what was your yardstick for, I mean, everybody's saying businesses should survive and when we're coming out of lockdown. Yeah. Look, I, I agree with you. And in that previous conversation we had a, a week or so ago, I I've done a number of these podcasts with, with other organizations because of that very same reason, you know, looking at it, how do we survive in unknown, uncharted territories? Well, firstly, I mean, my, 
my swim was without a doubt <laughs> unknown and uncharted uh, territory. I mean, I remember at the time I, I, I was so determined that I'd hang on to to when my boat came back, and then that was that that was gone, and I had to recalibrate and re realign my thought process. I think. There are so many parallels to this story, and and I must I must add you I always I always have to throw this in, and you have to add that last half hour, twenty eight and a half hours, because that last half hour was literally something I'm I'm not proud of at all, but is where I actually try to end my life. I mean, I try to end it, and and it was the most perfect day. Everything was fine because I thought I can't continue. And even in trying to do that, certain things happened that made me just realize, of course, we can do it. And, and the things I've learned in the last seven years, Ralph, I, w- without a doubt, COVID has been uncharted, um, unknown for every single person going into it. Um, we still don't know. Where, <laughs> who knows where the end of it is? I mean, we've seen second waves coming in different countries, what is going to happen in South Africa? What is happening in in our own family world? I mean, I, I'm, I'm a tiny little family of four, but we have a very big um, family with all our relatives and and immediate family. And you know, we we all talk a lot to each other. And I think we every single person out there has to apply whatever they can in their own form of um. What's the word I'm looking for? Own form of absolute disaster, you know? I mean, I, for many people, just speaking to you about your business, my business, one of my previous businesses, I mean, we've had to close the doors. It's We just can't pay the people. It's never, it's it's not, not going to come back. I'm in the hospitality business. I'm involved in hotels. Our doors are being shut. Our staff are all sitting on, on, um, uh, we're trying to pay them as much as we can, getting help from government wherever we can, etc. But it's not sustainable, and we don't know where the answers are going to come from. Or, but one thing I know is that I'm going to persevere. I, I'm never going to let this get me down. And I think I'm just very blessed to be in that space from a mindset. And I wake up every day, and I'm I, 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 since this happened to me, I mean, just about every day I wake up, I just thank God that I'm here because I shouldn't be here. And I find it very difficult to let things get me down. I must say, COVID has tested me. Uh, it's it's made me sit back and reflect. But but fortunately, I've got a very strong uh, parallel to reach into and that's and that's the experience I went to and that's why I've encouraged so many people recently to read this book not our, our, we call it our book I mean it's not my book it's not just my story because as you say it's a story of five interwoven things um I think people can learn so much from from other people's trauma and and step back and think about it you know it, it, I always think, um, I remember reading a motivational, just a one-liner that I read on a massive poster that said, every single day, you make a choice. And I remember I remember my first moments in that ocean where I, my, I had all these choices in front of me. And I remember saying to my wife, I, I said, Neat, I'm so sorry. I mean, I know I'm going to die here. I just don't know how I win. And that 
that for me was an irritant. You know, I wanted to know with certainty, was I going to drown? Was I going to be eaten by something? Was a boat going to drive over me? How was I going to die? And we all have a choice. And it's so easy to allow ourselves to slip into the, the, the negativity. And, and I remember in the water going, oh, there's no ways I can survive this. I knew where I was. I was 100 kilometers out to sea in the biggest storm in 36 years in that Mentawi Strait. The waves were a meter plus. I kept getting pushed under. I couldn't figure a way to uh, keep my head above water. I found myself swallowing water and coughing and spluttering. I thought, well, I'm not going to last long like this. And within, it was it was so insane, you know, in, in a matter of seconds. And I have no idea why I did this. I, I had a pair of shorts and a T-shirt on. I put my hand on my pulse. And I started counting my pulse. And I closed my eyes and I remember counting. All I remember, I, I mean, I did the very basic way of counting my, my, my pulse rate by of counting to 15, 15 seconds times it by four. And all I remember was over 170 beats a minute. It, it was, I don't know, 178 or whatever. And I remember going, oh, my God, that is my heart beating so fast. If I carry on like that, that's adrenaline. And when that adrenaline runs out, you're just going to sink to the bottom. So you have to calm down. And, you know, I try and I shared this story with somebody the other day. Right, right now, there are so many unknowns in all of our lives. And we get so sucked up in the medium of social media and all this fake news that's going on. We don't know what's real news and what's the noise. I, the noise that was with me in that ocean. But by... I'd broken my neck some years ago, so I'd done a lot of yoga, and I, and I, and I just did a yoga mantra. In, I closed my eyes, treading water, and I remember doing this yoga mantra and just calming myself down, not taking all the noise away, the waves washing, becoming oblivious to those, and in that moment, just being calm. And it was incredible. I don't know how, how long I did that for, but I reached for my pulse again, and I used the same method, and my, my heartbeat was right down. It was just a slow, good, doo -doo -doo -doo. and I went, okay, now let's start thinking. And the next step, my next thought process was, I know how you've been there before. I mean, the, the, the Indonesians are amazing people, but they throw everything in the ocean. And I knew I was going to hang on to, you know, I, I'm going to find, and, and my macabre sense of humor even got to a point where I said, you know what, I'm going to find a fridge. Because year, two years before we'd been on a trip when we nearly hit a floating fridge, and I said, I'm going to find a fridge and my positive thought is going to be full of bintang beer. I'm going to climb in the fridge and I'm going to drink beer. And, and I got so positive. You know, I was laughing to myself and off I went swimming, counting my strokes, gently just doing a breaststroke, not trying to swim to get anywhere, but swim to keep my head above water. And I think I've kind of, in a weird way, applied that same principle during this, this um, COVID. You know, we went into a lockdown. I was away on school holidays with my family and I thought you yeah, we were in Plet and I thought you know I'll just stay here it's quiet it's a tiny little town having no it's for three weeks it's not going to be long we can easily we'll drive home after that and then suddenly this lockdown was extended and we were in stage five and it was all put in official documents and I remember my first fleeting moment of panic. Like, what is this all about? How do I deal with it? Again, I, I applied the same principle. You know, I just took a deep breath, went into a quiet place, sat and reflected, and went, okay. The one thing I've really learned is to not fight 
the things you cannot change. And it's kind of the, you know, the deserata, you know, grant me the courage to, to um, change the things I can and, and all along that line. I, I kind of apply that in my life almost every day. And I, I realized, like I realized in the water, I can't fight the current, I can't fight the swell with this whole COVID thing. And, and interestingly, I've been able to be very calm. My wife keeps saying to me, I like, she starts freaking out a little bit. She says, you're so calm during this period. And I said, you know what? I've actually taken a step back. I'm doing and changing and working on everything around me that I can. But the things I can't change, like going out and seeing friends and that kind of stuff, you know, I've just accepted it. I don't think it's right. I have my own opinion on many things. But I've been in a place from a calmness that I guess has has helped me tremendously at this time. And and I hope I can I hope that just the, us talking about this, people can can take something from that is to just actually step back and look at it. There's so little we can change. I mean, even my businesses are shut and everything, but I'm using this time to fine-tune things that I know when we come back online, I can, I can implement and apply to my business. I've been researching whatever I can and, and, and finding time for stuff that we normally never have the time for because our lives are so busy. So I'm, I'm making the most of this. I, I'm, I haven't let it get to me. Please God, I can continue to do that. <laughs> so, wow. Um, I was going to ask you, so like, What's his name? Grove from Intel. He says only the paranoid survive. And so that sort of relates to your survival. But I mean, your thing is to not fight the things that can't change. I mean, what would your mantra, would that be your mantra for, for, for this? Stay calm. Is that, is that t-shirt? Stay yeah. calm. Yeah. <laughs> Don't fight the yeah. things you can't change. Yeah. Um, um, I, I often, when I read your book and spoke to you and there was so many things that indicate I mean, you say you're an A-type personality, but it's more than that. You like, I don't know, the word rebel comes to mind, strong-minded. You know, I, I'll put even crazy in yep. there. No, no, right? But crazy. then, so, so socially, you're doing these crazy, rebellious, out there, adventurous things, but you're also a highly successful business person who's traveled the world and managed thousands of people. Do you see that happening again? Do you see a life of big business, traveling, corporate? um, After what I went through, and just, can you just take a step back? Uh, Was that a comment uh, from someone about the paranoia? I think. uh, Yeah, so that's, um, what's his name? Grove from Intel, he said. His 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 thing about about innovation and business and in and yes, thriving yeah. in chaos is basically only the paranoid survive. In other words, when things yeah. are calm, get paranoid exactly. because <laughs> because they're gonna get yeah. crazy. And and interestingly, I you know I, it's 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 a, I I think this will probably be the first time I've ever said in public, but I I, I fundamentally from a little kid I believe that there was always more out there and in whatever it was, you know, so I kept looking for it. And, 
And, and you, you mentioned the word rebel. I, I, I was actually not a rebel. I mean, at school, I was a complete little nerd. I mean, I did run away from home like you did and you shared with me. And I think you were probably more of a rebel than I was. No yeah, ways. Yeah. No yeah. ways. <laughs> was, but, but it was so weird. When I went to university, I think Army, we had to do that, uh, those two years military service. I think that flipped a switch for me in, in my life. And I remember... I did some really crazy stuff in the army. I mean, I got shot. I got shot in the throat, and I didn't die then. And that flipped my brain because yeah, I got shot by one of our own guys. Did you? And you got shot by your own one yeah, of the own guys. And oh. we hadn't even we weren't even in action. It was in a training training session. And I remember thinking, here is this person who's probably got three brain cells. I am a pretty bright person, and then I've got to listen to this guy trying to teach me how to use an automatic weapon. And he doesn't even know how to use it properly in the, to the point that he shot me. Um, I know it was an accident, but he's meant to be a, 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 a um, trainer and training me. And I guess that was a little bit of a flip for me. And, and, I, and then we went up to the border and we took some tanks up to the border and the tank, our tanks, no one, I mean, our military didn't even do the research to understand that our tanks weighed 56 tons and were not maneuverable in the sand. And the, the Russian tanks were weighed 20 tons less than ours and could maneuver and things like that. And I really started questioning everything. And I think being definitely rebellious to rules about how life should be, because I'd, I never believed it. And I read a crazy book at a young age recommended by my then mentor, called synchronicity it just about and it just talks about how there's a higher thing out there that those who are willing to open their brains can connect to and I just found by doing that I found myself on this level that I thought differently to all my friends well not all my friends but obviously you you, you kind of hang with like-minded people and I was very fortunate in my company at the time I was working for was driven by an incredible leader who who just thought outside the box and we just connected here and I. And we did stuff in the 80s and 90s that was just unheard of. We were a license of American corporate and suddenly we found the Americans coming to see what we were doing all the time and it was just a hedonistic time in my life. And and I did I, I rebelled against um, conformity in terms of business. I rebelled against conformity in terms of being told what I can do and what I can't do. And it didn't always work out. I, I <laughs> dived out of a three-story building after a bottle of tequila. Broke <laughs> <Right> my neck. <laughs> um, I uh, walked away from that one, but I did. And what? Carry on. Why did you run away from home? I think because my mother told me I had to come home at a certain time and I didn't want to. I had a, I grew up on a very big open piece of land and I had a, my own pellet gun and I had a tree house down in the jungle and I was quite comfortable that I could look after myself. So just had enough of, of mom's, mom's rules and everything, I guess. And so I packed my pellet gun and set off with my brother i think he lasted about an hour and then decided the home comforts were much better and i i was quite happy you know i'd quite happily stay in my treehouse for the rest of my life i did go back when i got tired of shooting birds and things like that and <laughs> living like how i believe robinson crusoe lived 
But yeah, it was again just rebellious against something that was telling me what I had to do and how I had to do it, and I didn't believe in it. You know, I've learned to temper that, and and uh, I think I'm still a rebel in many ways. But you mean you said would I ever go back to that? I, I don't think I could could ever go back to corporate corporate life. I, I and I certainly hope and pray that this COVID has given the world the biggest shake up. You know, I I. I Rightly or wrongly, I think this this um, lockdown, certainly for a lot of the people I know, I think we're going to see entrepreneurial spirits rise out of the ashes. I think we're going to see some businesses that no one ever contemplated being or having out there. Um, and I think the big normal businesses are going to be, be hard, hard tapped to just reopen and carry on as they did before. I think. This time that the world's been in lockdown has given the world time to heal. I think it's given everybody time to reflect. I know there's a lot of anger out there. I know there's a lot of, um, there's obviously a lot of starvation and poverty and everything, certainly in, across the whole of Africa. But I can, I've got friends in London who are telling me, I mean, how sad it is. They're allowed to walk around for an hour or two a day. I mean, the number of, Homeless people, they finding the number of homeless people there are in America. I mean, I read an article this morning. There's over half a million registered homeless people that they're aware of just in America alone. And I think many people's eyes, certainly my eyes have been awakened or opened coming back to Cape Town. I had to go down and actually shut up my office the other day, and I was I was I was shocked at the number of people. You know, you've always got people at the traffic lights in Africa. It's Africa after all, you know. But the number of people that swarmed my car, tapping on my window, asking for something, and the desperation in their eyes. I really drove away from that that experience shaken and thinking, you know, just giving handouts to these people is not going to help. We, this is a much bigger problem that needs a much bigger solution and somebody's got to come up with it in fact i posted this morning i saw the most incredible um thing being done in australia where they have lots of unused during this lockdown unused garages in the city centers parking lots are unused but and they they underground they warm and they've gone to businesses and they've put beds most of them have got some form of ablution in them and they've turned them into in, into shelters for the homeless. Uh, what a brilliant idea. Nothing had to be built. Uh, the city centers are in lockdown and quiet. There's how many, how many parking lots have we got here in Cape Town? Throw a bunch of beds Thousand. in there, a couple of soup kitchens, and we could be putting people in a very comfortable place with winter coming. I don't know how many people out there are thinking about it, but it's, I've been thinking about it all day. So I think, uh, yeah, I think um, I think this is certainly food for thought. COVID's given a lot of food for thought. I would hate to go back into a huge business. In fact, it's so funny. I was in the, our, our business. We we managed many. We're obviously the hospitality and hotel industry in Wyndham. It started with RCR, but we were acquired by Wyndham Hotels and Resorts. And one of my colleagues, she lives in America, and, and she's also moved on, but she's still very involved in call centers across America. And what they found 
3,000 call centers operators all used to commute into offices. They very quickly through technology were able to move these people, give them a, a high quality headset and set them up at home with a decent computer system and their business is thriving, absolutely thriving. And she went, we've halved our overhead. People are much more productive and suddenly a whole new business model is open. And her and I started laughing because we introduced that in our call center in Johannesburg in 1994. We put, when we had mums or young women, married women or people who had children and wanted to work from home, in, in, but wanted to work and still earn money. In the, in the beginning of the, of the um, motherhood, when their kids were young, they, they worked from home. And they were as productive, if not more productive. We weren't polluting. We didn't have 800 people driving to, to an office every day, polluting the air. I mean, if every company out there started thinking along those lines and taking this time to do so, I think we could really shake, rattle, and roll this planet. And I think that's what we all need to be doing, you know. So, I mean, I look at you and your appetite for learning. And obviously, you said in the book that you read a lot and and you recite that quite a bit. And and, and I read a lot. And I often think as well the same thing as you. I start questioning things because I see a different version. And I think that's why this podcast is also important because people have sort of moved away from reading many people to now listening our lives have changed, and so we need yep. to adapt. Um, but, I mean, one of the things I, I look for now is like business unusual. I look for the rebels, and I look for the people who are doing things differently because I see that as the new way. Um, I see that those organizations who are employing lots of people, I, I see that they they have an opportunity to tap into some of these crazy people. And it seems that those organizations, the one that you work for, RCI, yeah. when they tapped into your creativity, they had untold innovation and growth. And so often I think in South Africa and the society we're in, I see that there's young people who maybe are a bit naughty and cheeky and they're quite young. And, and I'm wondering, how do we address that from a young age? How do we try and nurture these minds these people because they're the entrepreneurs of the future they're the change agents of the future at the moment they're rebels they're not sitting in class or they're yeah look i i i i I couldn't agree with you more i think now is the time you know we we probably the the age group um 35 let's make it older 42 to 60, that working group are probably the custodians or guardians of what is there now, but what is there now has to change so dramatically for, for the world to grow and, and, and get to the right place. Um, I, I, I really, really think that that group of people, let's call us the 40 to 60-year-olds, need to be identifying those youngsters and some of them are at school you know I, I, I you will see with all this homeschooling going on i think clever uh, um, educators will be able to pick out people i mean i've seen a child i've got two kids a 16 year old daughter and a 13 year old son and they're both 
adapted to this online learning so uniquely differently. And it fascinates me. And I've watched each of their behavior. And one does it a completely different way. They're a rebel. They're, he doesn't need to do this. And, and my daughter is like so structured. And she's doing exactly how the teachers want it. And our little guy is, is he's bucking the system. But yet he's getting everything done. And he's getting it done quicker, faster. Maybe he's taking a few shortcuts. And he's not always going to get it 100% right. But the way he's figuring his way around this new minefield has been incredible to watch. And, and that behavior mm. fascinates me. And I think I, I've, seen, I've seen a huge amount of this happen. I, like you, I'm, I'm, I mean, I read as much as I possibly can, but also all the, all the um, podcasts that are going on right now. And there's this incredible doctor from Hawaii. And I'm gonna, I, I, I can't think of his name now, but it'll come to me. But he has been he's been uh, challenging the status quo in a big, big way. And I, I, I watched um, one of his podcasts where he, he literally said what I've just said. He said, we, we are the custodians and guardians of what's here now. But from a scientific perspective, it's these young minds that are thinking so differently to, to how we think that are going to change the world. And those are the people we have to find and nurture. I, I would love, I mean, I think like I would love to be, I guess, in your business, the, the kind of business and find people like that and engage with people like that to, to establish. And, you know, I always go back to when I, I came back from, from the UK, I'd been out of South Africa for a number of years, came back to, to South Africa in 2010 from the UK and started my own business, my small business, but interestingly, found myself more engrossed in that business than I was in the corporate business because now it was my own and it was all about me. And it wasn't a good thing because I ended up, at least before in the big corporate, I was forced to take time off in that. When it was my own business, I lived it and ate and dreamt it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which is not good because I, I, I lost mm. focus on other things like family and, and my kids and things like that. So that those are lessons in themselves but i think with the youth of today we somehow have to i i had this i've got this this friend and i mean i'm sure he won't mind me um mentioning his name ray katie's you know he's he started katie's bank he and his brother and they rapidly changed the world banking was done in in, in, a, in a very clever and innovative way um, subsequently moved on from that, started a new business, and that's worked. And it's because, and he and I often used to sit there and think, what, how much we'd love to just create brain tanks where you took all these kids and people with these amazing ideas and they were rebels and you put them into rooms and just let them throw their ideas out there. Because I really think the clever minds, the older, wiser people, who, but who are prepared to to challenge the status quo could sit and and reflect on the things we've done well, the things we've done very badly as a, as humanity or as 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 a right as a species to what we've done to this earth and and pull it down into your own world, the business you operate in, and then challenge these youngsters with that think differently that are rebels and say come on if you could do this from a clean slate but you needed to come up with the same output how would you do it and i tell you what i think we'd see things in a very different we'd, we'd see answers or 
be given solutions from some of these 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 younger people that would blow us away. I mean, I I I get blown away by my own two kids, and not I don't think they're super bright or anything. It's just the way they think and look and see the world compared to the way I do. And half the time I want to ram my way down their throat, which is not the right thing to do, and then they rebel even more. But it, I find that very interesting. I think if we could somehow all take a step back and then find ways to harness that energy and that vision and what the, how they see the world, I think we'd be in a far better place than we are now. I think the, the thinking goes that the brain is so powerful that we overcome the science. I mean, I also I was going to mention Tim Noakes because, I mean, he basically said out of a thousand people, none of them are basically going to survive what yeah. you survived. And so how many illustrations are there in life where we overcome what science says is humanly possible? Yeah. And so there's two things. It's like, what were you thinking at the time to survive that long? Yeah. What are the lessons from that? Like sometimes is getting electric shock from, you know, a jellyfish, something that wakes you up and, and puts you back on track? Yeah. Um, so also you know is hallucination is that there for a reason is it because we need hope is it no matter what we need to put goals and something in front of us or else we will die and so it's the brain's mechanism of saying listen we all need to have something to hope for once covid finishes for the next thing even as crazy it might seem even though it's not really there yeah so how important is the mental side how do we activate the mental side of our kids how do you think differently i, I mean yeah, it, 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 I think it intrigues me a lot, and I, and I don't, I don't know if it was this one situation that got you to survive a twenty-eight and a half hours. Because you're right, that last half an hour, it's almost like that that last step towards yeah. the gold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it was the most important yeah, part because it was so ended. close. <laughs> No, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think I think if you and I in this chat could uh, um, pin all that down and and put it in a capsule, we'd be billionaires. We'd we'd own the world. I have no doubt that our the human species or the human race. Uh, uh, no, and and I probably would have challenged a lot of it prior to me falling overboard. But since I have fallen overboard. It's something that that occupies my my thinking hours in in huge quantities. Is that we do not tap into into I, I don't even know. Professor Noakes shared with me how he sees it, but I mean our minds are so powerful, and it's been proven. I mean there are people in the world that have done incredible stuff just with their minds. I think I think our environments allow us to become complacent and not be forced into a situation where you really need to test your mind as as much as we possibly should or could. And we all, I mean, I, I think human resilience is is unbelievable because I've experienced it not just in my own life, but having been through what I what I've been through, it's incredible how. My path has crossed so many people who've done incredible things too. You know, I've spoken to a guy who put his arm off in 127 hours. I've spoken to 
I just I, and I've shared the stage in the global um, um, talk circuit with some people, other people who've also had the most radical things that happened to happen to them. And when you when you start hanging around or meeting people like that more and more, it's it, it's actually quite a quite an incredible experience from a, from an opening of a gateway because you suddenly see listen. And I think I shared with you, I really struggled for a year after this happened to me because I kept thinking, how did I survive that? I knew I was dead. I knew I had no chance of surviving it. I remember I so badly wanted to talk to, to Professor Noakes to understand it from a physiological perspective. And in meeting with him, he said to me, Brett, why do you think you're here? And I said, you know, all I can say is that I'm a modern day miracle. And his words to me was, I'm a scientist. I don't believe in that and I have to find I have to work out physiologically because <laughs> he's a scientist and I understand that you know and as he said in the book one not maybe one in a thousand people will survive this but we don't know you don't know until you push yourself and to go back to what I mentioned earlier I think the complacency around or the comforts we have around our world today allow us to be there and I think we all need to I call it my, my clubs I mean every time I gave up in that ocean and it was eight times and I'm not proud of it but, but I could I had nothing left something gave me a smack you know I mean in my world I fundamentally believe it was God and for a reason you know he said yeah I'm not finished with you but you've got a lot to do now you've got to get out there and and, and share the story and but every time I gave up, I got a big clap. And I think we need, we as a race need that. I think we, and we need to be clapping ourselves, you know, in your own group of, of friends and people. Push each other, dig deep, ask questions. I think this world of social media, as we know today, there's so much information out there that you can so easily get your hands on. But there's also so much missed out there that is just garbage so it's being able to i wish there was just a way we could find a channel of like the one that lifts the lid up to saying hey where is your resilience line and how do you keep pushing it to come out and and improve your world around you for yourself and improve because i, I, I that's one thing i've learned if we fix our own bed the, the grass is never green on the other side. Never, never, never. And I thought it was. I was one of those people. I hunted money. I hunted power. I hunted fame. I craved it. You know, I believed that that's what my purpose in life was. And I achieved most of it. I mean, I became 36 years old. I was the CEO of a very, very big company looking after Europe, Middle East, Africa, India, Asia, Pacific, Japan, and Australia. I lived my life on an airplane. I thought I've made it, you know, flying, hobnobbing, private jets. This is what it's all about. And it wasn't. And it wasn't enough. And I kept wanting more and searching for more and et cetera. And, I, I, you know, it was only in the ocean that I, 28 and a half hours, people go, oh, that's not so long. Uh, let me tell you, when you know you're going to die and you just don't know how, there is no hope you don't there's absolutely no chance of you surviving this thing and you're just fighting for your life every single second. You know, I think it's very different standing in a big black cave, maybe with all the walls blocked in and there's no way out, 
but you can stand. You know, when you're fighting, 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 every breath, every pull of your arms, every kick of your legs is something that if you don't do, you're going to die. It's you on the knife's edge for so long that that 28 hours can feel like 28 days or 28 years. But you, you I reflect. I, and I tell you what, my life went before me in slow motion. And good part, I remembered everything from, from being three years old. And I chose paths of communicating, talking to every single person I could remember. Um, again, I've, I, I, there were people I, who'd really affected my life and I held them, held that anger in me. It was so incredible letting that go. And the physical feeling I got letting those people go, I felt I could swim forever after I did that one tiny little process. But over the overarching thing in all of that is when you reflect on, when I reflected on my life, I looked at it and said, you know, Brett, I mean, yes, you made lots of money and big houses in, in London and South Africa and this and that and lived in Hong Kong on the peak. I felt like I commanded the world. All of that actually means nothing if you haven't got the answers you're looking for. And those answers are not in a bank account or a motor car or in a house. They're within ourselves. They're within our mind. Our mind power is so incredible. And if we are not, I don't know, I just, for me, if I'm not exploring or experimenting with that all the time, that's when I find the world a very bleak place. And that's what gets me. Have you have you found it? Have you found anything like that out there? No, I, I, what I have found, have you found anything out there since since yeah, the, yeah, yeah. What I have found is that is is what I call my three Fs in the book: I, my my faith, my family, and my friends. You know, I I found that when I get those three in balance, and it doesn't matter if it's much more family or much more friends or much more faith, when they in balance for me, everything else is just slots into place. I mean, my ability to, when those are, I call it, when those settle my soul, I'm able to achieve and do things that I never thought I possibly could. And again, for me, that just, and, and, and this is completely personal, I'm not pushing this on anybody, but I find when I can think like that, you know what's so funny? I Money was perhaps my most important goal in life to make lots of money make money make money make money i made a lot of money i lost it i made a lot of money i lost it i'm on round three and i'll probably lose it all again <laughs> i don't have a lot of money anymore but i have enough to for me to be able to do and think about and create and structure the things i want to do and and that for me is a far i'm much more comfortable in my brain space in my comfort zone everything now than i've ever been and i don't have anything close to what i used to have from a monetary perspective an asset perspective a, a tangible things you know but my soul is better and i find that just the, that's more gold for me than anything i mean looking to the future i mean do you look at living differently most people you know, how old's that guy? That guy is 100 years old, the guy in the UK. He's running around his garden, raised 28 million How pounds. brilliant. Oh, I, mean, I love that man. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do, you, 
Do you see yourself being 100, 120? Is it goals in terms of living longer? Is it more goals in terms of, I mean, do you see the future staying in Cape Town? You lived in the UK. A lot of people have sort of moving around. They're not that comfortable with their future. Where do you see the future? I can tell you that I have no, no desire to live long if my health is not in, if my health is not good. So I always, I guess the rebel in me, I mean, I, I was a Sunday school teacher and very involved in our church growing up and it was all drummed into me. Life is, is, is you've got to bank on three score and 10. And I kind of always had that in my mind. If I get to 70, I'm not far off that. I'm 12 years off that, you know, and I go, well, I will certainly want to live a lot longer than the next 12 years. But I've stopped, I think since I fell off the boat, I stopped having a goal in terms of, of year frames. You know, I, there are lots of things I want to achieve. I don't, I don't see myself uh, spending the rest of my life in one place in South Africa as soon as my kids are educated and, and living their own life. My wife is probably the most spiritual person I know, and she's quite, a, she's quite happy to wander. And when I when I I mean I would really like to to make a difference in different parts of the world. I'd like to. I'm definitely an island person. I'd like to have a base on an island somewhere, be at a tent or a treehouse. You know, I I'm not into material things anymore. I just want to be able to travel and teach. And interestingly, a little, little while ago, somebody said, "What would you love to do?" What I'd really love to be doing is be in a position to help guide and teach young people to to flourish in their rebel side with their rebel side doing the right thing for them flourish with their curiosity and their challenging the system and looking at doing things a different way i'm big on i really think i I look all the time at all these green power systems and because I, I just think it's it's we've ruined this earth we've ruined the world and and like you i love the ocean i mean i'm not a church goer my mm. the ocean is my church and i always feel like i've got a direct line to god and i just chat i mean i think when people paddle up to me in the surf they think i'm a little bit mad because i'm just chatting away but and maybe i'm talking to myself some people will call that talking to yourself but i have the most incredible conversations i have the most incredible ideas and I feel more at peace sitting in the ocean than I do anywhere on the planet. So I'd like to spend more time. Sadly, Cape Town's water is too cold for me to spend every day surfing. I have. Why is that? Why is that? I, I, I think I surf yeah. more in Indonesia than I do surfing I know, Cape Town. The water is too so cold. Let you know how much yeah, I'm there. Yeah, yeah. I think I've been there 20 times. I love it. Have you been back I have, since? I have. I've been back once and I've been on a fishing trip. It's uh, long. We went, we flew up to the, to uh, Vil, um, to in, in Mozambique and then took a boat fishing right out, also 100 k's up, up to the White Banks. And um, yeah, uh, that was a very interesting trip. <laughs> we also had yeah, was it? boat yeah. issues there. I've my oh, friend, no. however, tied me, tied me to the boat, <laughs> oh, so I couldn't get out and fall overboard. But 
No, look, I'll, I'll never stop doing that. Like you, I, I wish I could go and spend a, a long period in Indo. I think it's an incredible country with incredible people. But, you know, there's so many places like that, Ralph. I think we have to be careful. Keep dreams alive. Um, mm. Dreams are a very important part of human psyche. And, and, and try and achieve your dreams. You know, when you tick a dream off, you can, there's no harm in dreaming further. Just keep dreaming because they they the things that can sustain us, you know. And, and have you heard from Doris? I speak to Doris on, the, on the odd occasion. We, we we used to chat quite. I mean, you know. So I think I said this to you on the phone. It's so hard to convey. To it's so difficult to convey how you really feel to someone who saved your life. I mean, not a day that goes by do I not think of him or what we went through in some weird way or another, especially around the fact when we, we as a South African boat sat down and spoke about it afterwards. I mean, the, the, the craziness around that where he just said, I'm going to go and find that guy. He had it in his mind that he was going to save your life. He knew it. He... And you know not religious, but he had faith in his gut. He filled with everybody. This is not in the book because I didn't know it at the time, but I've subsequently found out. But Doris's best friend passed away on the morning. morning He died on the morning I fell overboard. Doris knew he was going to die and he had cancer, but he was flying back. He'd been terminally ill for a long time and he was flying back on that Friday night. This was the Wednesday morning now. He hears that I've gone overboard. Sorry, just before that, he'd heard that that his friend had died and he was kind of, well, I'm still going back anyway. I'll be there in time for the funeral. And then they said, well, look, we're actually going to cremate him and get his ashes today so you won't be back in time and his crew said to me afterwards you know i've stayed quite very friendly with two of them and close to another two another i mean the other guys just we we i send them a note every year thanking them but other than that we're not in touch but talking to the guys and actually my wife and i flew to australia and spent some time with the doctor who attended to me he's a top doctor urologist and couple of the other guys we're closer to. And we, I'm just fascinated by Doris. I'd love to make a movie of this man's life because the little I know of it, it is so radical. So he gets this message. His best friend's died. He goes back to his boat. It's this hectic storm. He says to these guys, I'm going out to find this South African. And he says, you guys can do whatever you want. I'm going to find him. Three of them go with the doctor uh, well, two doctors, a chiropractor, a urologist, a lifesaver, a full-time lifesaver, the guy in the picture that you see towing me to the boat when I was rescued, and Doris. And they go out there, and he is manic. They tell me he is manic. He is not going back. The boats are called back. Their boat, all the three of them at one stage were doing, was just bailing water out of this, this tinny. Because it was just, the, the waves were so big, it was just swamping the boat. And they... Kept saying, Doris, we need to go back. We need to go back. We we per- we putting our boat at peril. And he was just committed. He 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 was going to find me. And and it, it, it's too, you know, we talk about ah, oh, there's whatever you want to call it, synchronicity, faith, whatever. Doris 
is cruising along. And he tells me this afterwards. He's cruising along and he'd given me until 7 o'clock in the morning. They set sail at 3 o'clock, just after 3. Sailed. And as he sailed out of Turpajet, he said to himself, I'm going north. And he radioed and the guy said, but, but he won't be there. And the current had turned. The current had turned, and that night he'd gone and he'd seen he was having a wee overboard, and he saw the, a bunch of coconuts floating the wrong way, and he went, "Oh my God, the current's changed." That's why I didn't find him, and he knew I'd be on that current. And the next day he followed the current where the current shouldn't be, and he literally sailed right up to me. But he but he says to me, I said to him, "So why is that their boat was coming to me?" They're sailing towards me. That current is pumping at two and a half kilometers an hour. So I'm not moving fast, and I can't, but, but I, I mean, all that is working against me. The current's taking me. It should have plonked me on the, on, on the islands sometime that night because the current had turned, and I'm now being dragged parallel to the current, to the shore, and I can't, can't swim against it. He's coming along in his boat. He'd given me until 7 a.m. in the morning. He said, after that, it's more, I'm going to be looking for a body. Just as seven o'clock comes, he said, he's not a man of God or anything. He said, he put his head down. His, his sister, Denise, had passed away a year before from cancer and the day before his best friend. He puts his head down. He says, Gary, Denise, help me find the sapphire. And he hears it, his sister's voice saying, Doris, turn your boat one degree to starboard. And he does. He doesn't even question. He turns one degree to starboard. Now, I'm in the water. I'd seen their boat. They, Doris calculated he, they, he was probably about a kilometer and a half away from me when I saw the mast of the Baron Joey. Then they came close and close, and I saw the, the, the bow of the boat, a bloke in the front of the bow, and then they turned away to the right, to their right, to my left. And I remember thinking, please don't turn away. Please, you cannot do this, because it just happened where a Indonesian fishing boat had come, I thought, oh, this is it, and they'd sailed away. And that's when I tried to end my life. I'm now, I've come up from coughing, spluttering, screaming in my own brain, saying, what are you doing trying to end your own life? This is ridiculous. It's a calm day. There are going to be thousands of boats out there fishing. You're going to be saved. And I see this cross. I actually say, God, shove that where it fits best. And... It turns out it's the master of the Baron Joey. Then I see these people. Then the boat turns away from me, and I go, no, 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 no. And I put my head down. I make a pact to myself to swim for 300 counts. I'm not lifting my head. I talk to Chad LeClow. <laughs> I had this full-on conversation with this kid who's just won the Olympic gold and says, help me swim like you swam. And I put my head down, and I swim, and I get there. I lift my head, and the boat is right there, and I scream. I remember saying, did you guys hear me? They said, yeah, mate, we thought there was a wounded buffalo in the ocean. <laughs> and, uh, and I get on board and I meet Doris and I'm sitting talking to him and I said, like, why did you turn away? And he said, and that's when he told me, he said, I I'd given you till seven o'clock, five past seven in the morning, I was spotted 7.15, I was on that boat. Amazing. If Doris worked out, he said, if, if I hadn't turned that one degree to starboard, he actually plotted on the, on the chart. By the time, if they'd stayed on the course they were on, if they'd come straight at me, by the time they got to the point I was at, because of where the current was going, I would have 
been too far to the to the starboard side of their boat that they would never have spotted my little head. And he he, did, he used his gut the whole way through that. I mean, yeah. the thing about Doris though is that many people don't see him as a delightful sort of chap. Quite a, a you know a bit of a maverick in many ways. He's misunderstood in what society sees, but in exactly. fact, doesn't he understand humanity the most out of all of us? Exactly. Exactly. I, you know, I remember, I remember afterwards on some of the radio shows I was on, and and I, have, I was fortunate enough to grow up next to Sean Thompson, the the South African surfing legend. Yeah. And um, he was interviewed on the radio, and they said, um, "Well, Doris is uh, Tony Elthrington is out there," and and Sean on radio said, "I'd rather have Doris searching for me than the entire U.S. Navy." <laughs> Because that is it. I mean, Doris just has it. And there are, you said the words, he's a maverick. He's out there. He's been gone. He ran away from South Africa, from Australia at 16. He stole a boat and went sailing in in, uh, in the Mentawis. One of the founders of the Mentawis went off to Bali. He led a crazy life chasing. He's the first to put up his hand and say, I was chasing demons. But you know what? You look at it, he, he's found the place that he wants to be in. He's been an incredible human being in, in the amount of work he's done for surf aid, uh, the, the, the people's lives he saved during the tsunami. He's just an incredible human being. And, and as you say, he's, if we look back, has, has, is it Bill Gates who's really got it or is it Doris? I mean, in my world, it's Doris. <laughs> I think my brother would say it was Doris. But I, what happened is when I read the book, actually I had my goals book next to it. And I was like, no, nah, actually, I want to go uh, get a, a yacht now, and I want to yeah. sail around Indo or Greece, right? That, yeah. that, he inspired me. I don't know how I'm going to learn to sail. Uh, yeah. I'm do my yacht masters. I know you've done it. Yeah, you can do it. It's not hard. Uh, you can uh, go what a new goal. What a new goal. Put it in your goals and do it. I'm also going to do it before I die. And that's why. I don't know when I'm going to die, but I'm definitely going to sail around those islands in a beautiful yacht with my family before I die. Brett, I'd love to be with you that day. Yeah. Well, Brett, well I can't wait to have a beer with you. I hope you're still drinking. Me too. <laughs> yeah, of course. When things break up and go for a, a bloody good surf as well, even though it'd be cold, we'll have to put on our. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I really do appreciate it. It's been a highlight for me this year speaking to you and a real inspiration. And I think that your story and what you've gone through has many. I think it should be shared far and wide the world over right now because I think there are a lot of people in fear and anxious and and I think you give them hope that they're not lost just yet. And that that is truly my message. I mean, never ever give up hope. It's life is short. We don't know when it's going to end. Live it well and live it with purpose, and always, always, always believe in the impossible because you never know. That impossible can, can can become a possible. My my thoughts and regards go to your family as well, by the way, to your wife and children. Yeah. Um, wow. What, what a what a what a journey. It certainly has been, and we are fifteen minutes over our time slot. Wow. Yeah. So I, I better go. But oh, no. <laughs> we'll do this again. We'll have the aftermath after COVID nineteen. 
We'll check yeah, I think your message is so important to the youth and South Africa and the world, really, I do. So I want to help you get it out there. Thank you, Ralph. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And, and say hi to Haley and the family. I hope your son's still surfing up a storm. Not at the moment. That'd be illegal. But, I know. Um, I know. <laughs> 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 I mean, fabulous chatting. Take care and stay safe.